If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 3. We're back in John chapter 3 in our study of this ancient book, a story about Jesus, his life, his teachings, ultimately his death and his resurrection, a story told to us to convince us that we can trust Jesus, that we really can stake our lives to him amidst all this world's offers to us, all the religions that are out there, all the promises of what we might be able to accomplish ourselves by the work that we do, by the relationships that we build, by the goods that we amass in our bank accounts or in our houses, for all of the things that compete for our affection and our attention, for our trust and our security, Jesus alone is trustworthy. That's John's case that he's making in this ancient book. We're going to unpack a piece of that case today. And actually... Today we come to one of the most beloved and familiar passages in all the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible this morning, but you've lived in America for any adult amount of time, chances are this is one of the only passages you you do know. Chances are, even if you haven't heard it for yourself, uh, you will recognize the reference from signs at I don't know, WWF matches and from Tim Tebow's Eye Black. You're going to find out what John 3.16 is all about today. Chances are, though, that you're familiar with it. Um, the thing is that familiarity sometimes can be a barrier, actually. The things we're most familiar with sometimes are the things that we're least sensitive to, least, uh, least a, uh, attentive to. And... Sometimes the key to attaching ourselves and really understanding and appreciating something familiar is to be shaken up in it. I mean, when's the last time you paid attention to the words in the Pledge of Allegiance? I don't know. I mean, when's the last time you even said the Pledge of Allegiance? I mean, you guys aren't, aren't in high school anymore. I don't know. It's national Anthem. When's the last time you actually paid attention to what those words are? We need to make the familiar unfamiliar if we're going to see its true meaning and its full beauty. That's what we want to try to do today as we unpack John 3.16 in the context that it falls. Now, there are a couple of different themes that come out in this, in this little section that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, two themes that are really closely related. We've got to understand both of them. We've got to understand how they fit together if we want to understand this beautiful passage. Now, the one theme, the first one, the one that comes out in the, in the key verse that one's the love of God. John 3.16 itself is a, is a statement that's meant to describe the extent of his love, the vastness of it. We want to unpack that. But, and, and, and in that sense, you might think of our passage this morning as a, a sort of painting or portrait of what his love is like. John's, John's goal here is to draw a picture for us that explains the vastness of it. But here's the key difference, and this is the second thing we're going to unpack this morning. The passage is not just directing us to God's love. The passage also invites us into the thing that it describes. It's not just describing something that happened back in history, for example. It's not just painting a picture of a still scene that stays static and remains the same. It's, it's, it's describing something that's a living reality that once it's come to you, demands a response from you. 
So what he's doing is actually inviting us as listeners, as hearers and readers. He's inviting us into the story that he's describing and demanding that we make a choice. A choice of how we will respond to what he tells us Jesus has done for us. So the two things we're going to unpack this morning are the greatness of God's love. That's the main one and the one we'll spend the most time on. But then we want to squarely face up to the gravity of our choice because there is no way to hear this picture, of, to see this picture, hear this story of his love for us and, and do nothing with it. There is no neutrality once you've heard this message. So that's where we are this morning. I want to begin by reading it. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from John th- chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I said already, John wants to express something of the extent or the scale or the depth or the height or the intensity or the greatness of God's love. That's what he's getting at with, for God so loved the world. Don't miss the the so. He He wants us to see Just how much God loved the world. Just what God's love cost him. The question we're supposed to ask as we start this passage is, well, how did he love the world? We're invited to consider that he so loved the world. Well, how? In what way? To what extent? In the text, I think, especially the first couple of verses that we just read, points us to two separate things that we've got to connect with if we want to see the scale of God's love, the greatness of it. If we want to see how he has loved us, we need to understand two things. The first is who it is that he loves. To see the greatness of his love, you need to see who the objects actually are. It's not maybe what you're thinking. And then we need to see what his love cost him. The greatness of his love is a is, is inseparably attached to what it cost him to love in the way that he does. Those two things, who he loves, the objects of his love, and, and the costliness of his love are the key to understanding the way in which he loves. That God so loved the world. Now the first is this, who God loves. It means we need, we need to know what John means by the world. 
When he says that God loves the world, who's he talking about? We really need to do this because I think we, we often use the world, the world, that phrase, in a different way than John is using it here. I think a lot of times when we use it, it refers to, say, the diversity of cultures that are out there. The world as a, as a way of expressing um, our planet and, and all of, all of the, uh, the, the life that is in it, all of its beauty and diversity. Sometimes we use it to, as, as a reference to sort of the bigness of life out there as opposed to our specific location. So you might, you might say something like, I want to go and see the world. And what we mean by that is we want to get out of where we are and see the, the bigness of what's out there. And those are obviously, those are, those are meanings, accurate meanings of, of that term. It really depends on how you want to use it. It can, it can be used in a lot of different ways. And John, though, it's almost always used in one very specific way. It's different even from the way other biblical writers use the term the world. When John uses it, it's almost always a negative thing. For him, the world is a kind of shorthand reference to the, the totality of humanity as rebels against God. The world is the thing that he saves his children out of. To be in Christ is to be no longer of the world. It's a, 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 the realm, if you will, the sphere that's defined by, by evil and darkness. It's an active force. It's not innocent babies caught in a burning building that God loves and comes to save. It's rebels who have taken up arms against him. The world is a hostile, active, willful, and intentional rejection of what is good and true and beautiful. It's a rejection of God himself. That's what the world means. Now so far I've mostly used sort of political terminology. And the Bible often does. It talks about kingdoms, about God's kingdom versus the kingdom of this world, which is in rebellion, at war against God's kingdom. But maybe that doesn't quite capture it all. There's another layer to it that might help you to see uh, what sin really is like, what me and you have been guilty of uh, by our sin. It's not just political. That's kind of abstract. We need to see that sin is always personal. We're just talking about what the world has a very personal connotation to it. Now, here's what I mean. We're told in the scriptures that God made, made us all for relationship with him. That's the reason that we're here. He made us unique among all the things of this world in his image so that we could know him in a personal way and enjoy him, to trust him to do the things that we need done for us, to give us what it is that we really need, to satisfy us in a way that nothing else can. He made us for personal relationship with him. And in that sense, sin is always a statement on God personally. Whether we realize it or not. Now, I, I think, maybe you feel this way too, I think it's often hard for me to imagine how the things that I do wrong, even if, I'm, even if I recognize what I do as something that I shouldn't, it's really hard for me to connect with the fact that what I've done has anything to do with God. He seems abstract to me, removed from my experience. And sometimes I, it's, e it's certainly easy for me to see how I wrong other people. You know, if I'm unkind to my wife or my children. I can see and feel conviction about that. But 
it's hard to see God as behind it. So when the, when the Bible talks about God as sort of the, the, the one we've ultimately sinned against, there's a disconnect there. Maybe that's there for you too. But what the Bible tells us is that sin, even if it's directed against somebody else here on earth, is always ultimately against God. Because what every single sin says, every time we put ourselves above the commands that are given to us or above the needs of other people, every time we do that, we've put something else in the place that belongs to God in our lives. Some other thing has become so important to us that we're willing to do harm to others in order to get it. It's always a replacement of him, and that's always personal. He promises to care for us in the scriptures. He asks that we trust him because he knows what we need better than we do. He promises that he's the only one who can give us peace and joy and true satisfaction. And whether we're thinking about him and about his will when we sin, or thinking about nothing but ourselves, we're always replacing our vision putting our vision of what's best, of what's desirable above his, and that's always a personal statement on him. Here's an example that might help you understand it more. Let's say a guy's married, but has a problem with lust. It could be pornography or movies or Sports Illustrated, Swimsuit Edition or whatever, whatever it is. When this guy indulges his desire in whatever form it comes to him, the chances are, in that moment, He's probably not thinking about his wife at all. Maybe he's doing it for revenge, but probably not. More likely, she's just not in that picture. He's only thinking about his desire, about getting what he wants and believes that he needs. But in a real sense, whether he thinks about her at all or not, that sin is still very personal. Because whether she ever finds out about it or not, is ever actually hurt by it or not, he's breaking a promise that he made to be faithful to her. But on an even deeper level, he's making a statement about her. What he's saying is that she isn't enough. At least in that one moment, not enough. That's personal. Even if she's not coming into, his, into the picture. He's saying, I can do better on my own. And in a similar way, all of our sin amounts to putting ourselves and what we want in that moment in place of God and what he promises us. It's always personal. And when John says that God loves the world, what he's saying is that God loves Those who have not loved him. Put it even stronger than that. What he's saying when he says that God loves the world is that he has chosen to rescue those who abandoned him. That he's chosen to come after those who rejected him. That he's chosen to win over those who have preferred other things to him. What's God's love like? His love is a resilient love. A love that is full of grace. A love that is steadfast. 
You could even say in in one sense that his love is unconditional. The objects of his love here, the world, don't deserve it. There's nothing beautiful in them to woo him in his affections. He just loves them. But I think it's even more than that. There's even, better, there's, even, there's even a better way to say it than that his love is unconditional. It takes us to the next dimension. So one of the things, if you want to see how God loves, what's the scale or extent of God's love, you've got to see that he, who it is that he loves. He loves people who have rejected him. But there's another, there's another layer here. You want to know how God loves, how great his love is? You need to see what his love has cost him. What he gave up to love those people, us, the world, in the way that he has. God's love cost the life of the son. For God to love the world, he had to pay what the world owes. That's the next dimension here. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If, if, if what John's doing here is painting a picture of the love of God, like I've said, then this, this picture is painted on a very dark canvas. And it's only against the darkness of that canvas that the brilliant colors of his love spring out in all of their vividness and beauty. And the darkness against which God's love is painted here is very specific. It's a picture of judgment, of what we deserve because of our rejection of God. It's, it's, it's layered all through this text. The text is about what God has done to save. The backdrop for it, though, is what would happen if he doesn't do anything. What we deserve is the backdrop. It's in verse 16. God gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. The implication is the default mode, perishing. Verse 18 says that God didn't send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that's because the world was already condemned. The son didn't have to come to the world to condemn the world. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him isn't condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So there's this, there's this default mode into which God's love breaks. And it's one of judgment. Really, what we have here are just two ways of talking about the same biggest, big reality. One of them is in the terms of life and death, perishing versus eternal life. One is in the terms of a courtroom, of condemnation and judgment, of what is, what is owed, what justice demands. Together, they give us a sense of what, what is always true, that what stands opposed to God, what challenges Him, And his definition of what's best for the world that he loves, all of that must be overcome. There is no room for war in the world that God is building. And he will have the last word. Judgment, as the Bible talks about it, is as inevitable as cause and effect. The judgment always just matches the crime. To reject God is to reject the source of life, which is to perish. To deny God's authority over us is to be guilty of treason. That just can't stand. It's cause and effect. 
to say that other things are going to satisfy us or secure us, that God isn't trustworthy to give us what we really need, well, that's to be guilty of a kind of libel. And his name will be vindicated. That's the backdrop. But it's here, against that backdrop, that God's love appears in all of its vivid beauty. It's here, and only here, that we can truly see how great his love is. Because it is the reality of judgment, of what each of us deserves, that explains why God had to come to us in Jesus. That explains why Jesus had to die. And that tells us something about the scale of his love for us. The message of this verse and of the entire Bible is that God, who is the offended party, who is the wounded husband, who is the just and holy judge, that this God, this one, absorbs our punishment himself. When when verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he's talking about the death of the son. That's what it means to give him. We know that because of what he's going to say later in this book, because of where this whole story is building to his death and his resurrection is the whole point of why he came. We know it especially because of the verses right before verse 16. Verse 16 is a a conclusion or a further explanation for God so loved the world. What's the for doing there? It's explaining verses verses 14 and 15, which are a promise that just as Moses lifted a serpent in the wilderness as a a sign of judgment on Israel, but also a, a beacon of hope and life for them, so Jesus would be lifted up on the cross so that everyone who looks to him in faith would be saved. It's a reference to his death and his resurrection. What we also know from from John's perspective is that this isn't some sort of child sacrifice where the father sends an unwilling and helpless son to be killed against, against what he wants. What John has told us and will continue to tell us is that the father and the son for all the mystery in that relationship, the Father and the Son work together. That they are as one. And that in a sense that we can barely even get our minds around, this was God himself dying in our place. Jesus gave his life for those who wanted nothing to do with him. That's the message of verse 16. That's how God loved the world. I wonder how this portrait of love lands on you. Ultimately, nobody has a problem with the idea of a loving God, God with fatherly affection and care. Whether you're Christian or not, chances are, if you think there is a God, that's the way you prefer to think about Him. That's not much of a stretch. But talk of judgment and sacrifice complicates things, doesn't it? Those elements in this picture of God's love don't sit well. I'm tempted here to go into into the Bible's picture of why judgment, why it makes sense. To raise issues like the fact that apart from a God who judges justly, we don't have any hope for any kind of justice. That if you lived in anywhere but the first world where we don't, have to worry for our safety in the way other countries do that the idea of a God who who promises that vengeance belongs to his sounds 
sounds wonderfully liberating. I'm tempted to talk about the nature of forgiveness, how forgiveness itself always means you bear some sort of cost. God can't just look the other way. That anytime you forgive someone for anything they've done to you, it means, it means that you have to absorb something of what it is they've done to not make them pay for it. Somebody, somebody wrecks your car and you choose not to make them pay, you're going to have to pay. Somebody's got to pay to fix it. Forgiveness works the same for God. If he's going to forgive us, there's still a cost there to be paid. I'm tempted to go into these details, but all I want to do is say one thing. Especially if this is, if it isn't sitting well with you right now. This picture of his love. If you think it would be more loving for God to just not care about sin rather than deal with it in the death of the Son, I want to suggest that you think about it from a different perspective. That that the reality of God's judgment and the significance of our sin, both of which are pointed to in this passage, far from diminishing God's love, these things are the key to seeing the true greatness of God's love. What God's love is emerges straight from the picture of who it's shown for That he loves those who don't love him. And what it costs. That it meant giving up the life of the son. You take either of those things out of the picture of his love. And what you end up is is just a thin shell of the biblical picture of God's love. You take out the undeserving objects of his love. And he just feels the way anyone would feel. You take out what it actually cost him. And well, what you end up with is something a lot closer to just niceness or warmth or sort of good cheer. Something that's far removed from the costly love the Bible draws a picture of. Without sin and without judgment, what you have is not divine love, but sort of well wishes towards somebody who deserves it. What you have is something a lot more similar to what I mean when I say that I love Johnny Cash. He deserves it. In one sense, his music is amazing. I love some of the qualities that are in his music and in his life story. And what it means is that I'm honestly just not implicated that much in any of the flaws that he had. My love for Johnny Cash costs me nothing other than what I've paid to buy his records. And a God who loves us outside of the context of our sin and the fact that we don't deserve it. A God who loves us only in the sense that he wants what's best for us but that doesn't cost him anything is a God who loves us like I love Johnny Cash. That is a shell of the Bible's picture of his love. His love isn't just appreciation from a distance from the comfort of home or the mediation of a TV screen or an iPod it is messy it is costly but in that sense it is personal and it is beautiful that's how God loves the world now what I want to do with the few minutes we have left is point you to The other emphasis here, which is on us, 
on what we're going to do with this picture of God's love. We can't do justice to it unless we realize the choice that it puts to everyone who comes across it. You are now in this story because you've heard it. So what John is doing here in this, in this section is he's sort of taking a step back and, and giving his commentary on the meaning of what Jesus has said to Nicodemus on what's happened so far in chapters 2 and 3. What he's doing is universalizing what's been said and, and pitching it to everyone who would ever read this, including you. And he's saying, light has come into the world. God has so loved the world that he gave his only son. But now, now you are confronted with a choice. How will you respond to this light? It's not just about what Jesus said to Simon or Nathaniel or Nicodemus. John is painting a picture that puts his readers straight into it. The question is, what are we going to do? And John's main concern here is a warning. Most of this paragraph is a warning against hearing this message of what Jesus has done and failing to embrace him. What it gives us, the really useful nuggets that come out in this paragraph, I think, are in helping us to understand what might be going on in us if we reject this picture of God's light. What actually is happening in us when we see this picture of his love for us in Christ And reject it rather than embrace it. Verses 19 and 20 describe this process. It says, this is the judgment. Jesus has come. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They hated the light, in fact. Now, I think, normally, when we think about somebody rejecting Jesus... Maybe this is just me, but I'm guessing it's, it, that you guys feel this way too. Often when we think about somebody who rejects Jesus, we think of it as something they've done with their mind. That they've sort of heard the case for Christ, but come to see that he just, it just can't hold water. The evidence just isn't there. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And, and honestly, weighing evidence... That matters. That, that's an important part of evaluating Jesus and whether he's for you. In fact, I've said it before, say it again, John's book is presented here to us partly to give us reasons to believe in Jesus. He wants you weighing the, the evidence, the pros uh, of, of, of faith in Jesus. But what he points to here in this paragraph about those who reject Christ, what he's warning each of you against as you hear this picture of Uh, painted for you of of God's love for us in Christ. What he wants you to avoid is not what you think in your mind, but what you love in your heart. Now this picture, this, this that he's drawing may not look too familiar on the surface, but it's all too close to the mark if we look a little deeper. It's about what the heart loves and wants. People reject the light because they love the darkness. They reject Jesus because they don't want him to be true. Because they don't want his vision for their life. They want their own. I I, I heard recently or read somewhere that the way the ancient Greeks, especially Plato, used to think about how reason and the passions or the loves of the heart interact with each other is that he thought about the passions the affections of the heart, what you're drawn to as, 
as a team of horses and reason as the sort of chariot driver who guides them, who holds them in check, who sort of, who sort of steers them to the most productive places. But how, how these days, philosophers and social scientists, people who study human motivation, realize that that's actually got it backwards. That more often than not, more often than not, reason is put into the service of what the heart really wants. In other words, you believe what you want to believe. I, uh, I really would like to have a new TV, for example. Um, and I've seen that I can basically talk myself into whatever it is I want to do. I've gotten really good at coming up with rational cases or justifications for the things that really ultimately just is what I want. So I could talk to you about how, you know, I, we don't have the cabinet that made us have this really small TV before. Now I got room, I can, I can, I can grow, we have space for it. How, you know, our old TV is starting to fade a little bit. You know, some of the bulbs are kind of going out, maybe some missing pixels. Really, just not, it's, the TV's got to be replaced. Here's how we can put together the money we need to buy the new TV. Look, I mean, obviously, it's an obvious choice. Let's get the TV. hear me talk about it and it can sound like the most rational thing in the world even an inevitable need or necessity but what we all know what I'm doing in that situation what we all do I'm just using my mind to justify what my heart ultimately wants this gets at how the Bible describes sin gets us closer to recognizing ourselves here in, in what John has described Remember, evil deeds, when he says that they love their evil deeds in the darkness that gives cover to their evil deeds, don't think about just sort of torturing cats for the sake of it, okay? Don't think about like, don't think about, like comic book villain kind of evil deeds here. Evil deeds, under the, under the Bible's description, are us wanting something that's probably a really good thing. In its, in its own place, in its own right, but wanting it too much so that we sacrifice other things that are good in order to get it, so that we step on other people in order to get what we think we need, so that we put our interests, our desires above what God has given us or promised to us. It's what our heart wants too much. That's what the Bible means by evil deeds. And what he's saying here is that when Jesus comes into the world as a light, sometimes we still want what we want. And we want it so much that Jesus is not a beacon of hope to us. He is a threat to us because he might mean we don't get what it is we really want. Because committing to him might mean taking what he says is best for us instead of what we think is best for us. He becomes a threat. The danger is that we won't want Jesus to be true. We won't even want him as a savior if being saved means losing what we truly love. I think this is behind a lot of doubt about Jesus. If Jesus is not attractive to you this morning, don't assume that it's on neutral, rational grounds that you aren't sold. Because the way you're thinking about him could be tainted by a love for what you would have to give up if Jesus is who he claims to be. I came across a third-hand reference to an old college pastor, I'm not sure where or who, who got to the place where when kids would come 
would come to him, kids in college, struggling with newfound doubt about Jesus and his claims, that his go-to question to them was, who have you been sleeping with? Because what he had discovered is that doubt is often really closely connected with your desire to protect something else you've come to love. And friends, repentance, to have faith, to come to the God who so loved you that he gave up his son for you, does mean that you might have to die to something at this moment you can't imagine living without. Jesus pulls no punches on that front. He says, actually, if you want to gain your life, you're going to have to lose it first. That means you're going to have to lose what you think right now you can't live without. But he promises us that dying to ourselves is the way to truly live. And he asks us a question that I think is an appropriate way to end today. What gain is it after all? If you get everything you want out of this life, but still end up dead. Our Father, we can't even begin to get our minds around the scale of your love for us, which comes to us while we're still enemies to make peace. And which comes to us at the cost of that thing which is most precious in all the world. We can't imagine it, but we know there's life in this truth. And so what we ask is what we always ask of you when we hear your word. That you would by your spirit's power help us to see it so that we love it so that we find rest and peace in it so that we can have the confident faith of those who know you to be true give us this faith we pray in Jesus name Amen